0: This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the emdocs.net podcast, we're going to cover some oncologic emergencies. We're going to break this into two different podcasts just because there are so many different conditions that these patients can experience. Our first condition today is SEC syndrome. This occurs due to obstruction of blood flow through the SEC, and it's usually caused by internal vascular invasion or blockage or some form of external compression. Malignancy is a predominant cause and it's usually non-small cell or small cell lung cancer followed by lymphoma. Thrombosis of the SEC accounts for the majority of non-cancer related causes of SEC syndrome and it's usually due to some form of indwelling intravascular device. External compression can be due to a lung mass, lymph nodes, or other mediastinal structures. The time of symptom onset depends on the rate of obstruction and formation of venous collateral flow. Dyspnea is the most common symptom, but patients may also have face fullness and swelling, maybe cough, chest pain, and even dysphagia. Unfortunately, if there's rapid onset of symptoms and there's no collateral flow, you can have fast onset of airway edema, which might need intubation. Facial edema and distension of neck and chest wall veins are commonly seen in these patients on your exam, but facial plethora and arm edema are pretty rare. Symptoms are usually gradual over weeks with an increase in venous pressure, and then they often improve when there's formation of collateral vessel flow. The chest x-ray is going to be your first imaging test, and it's abnormal in about 84% of patients. You might see a widened mediastinum and even a pleural effusion. The optimal imaging test in the ED is going to be a CT of the chest with contrast. This can show venous drainage, the point of blockage, and identify the cause of obstruction. The presence of collateral vessel flow on CT has a specificity of 96% and a sensitivity of 92%. Other imaging options that the patient can undergo while they're admitted include things like MRV, ultrasound, and cavagram. During their admission, biopsies are often taken of the mass if cancer is found. Treatment first involves symptom relief and disease management. Get on the phone with your oncology specialist early. If the patient necessitates an airway intervention, then get all hands on deck. With rapid swelling of the airway, this can be a very difficult intubation. These patients with airway edema will often need emergent sensing with radiation and also high-dose steroids. If the cancer is found to be chemotherapy-sensitive, then systemic chemotherapy is warranted. A stent can be placed within the vessel by IR if there are severe symptoms. Radiotherapy is done for non-small cell lung cancer followed by stent placement. If a thrombus is present, systemic anticoagulation with heparin is needed. Now, we learn about treatment with diuretics, but keep in mind that these are not supported in the literature and they're not recommended. Unfortunately, survival is pretty poor at around 6 months on average once the diagnosis is made. Our second condition is malignant pericardial disease which is present in up to one-third of cancer patients and is most commonly due to metastases from lung or breast cancer. Now, keep in mind, the majority of pericardial effusions are not malignancy-related. Less than 10% are actually associated with malignancy. Most patients are going to present with exertional dyspnea. A slow accumulation of fluid can allow up to 2 liters in the pericardial sac to collect with no change in hemodynamics, as long as that accumulation is slow. The acute, rapid accumulation of fluid will cause decompensation. Like many things in emergency medicine, ultrasound is going to be your key to diagnosis and allows you to evaluate for tamponade. Pericardiocentesis is often the necessary treatment with ultrasound guidance preferred. Keep in mind that if this patient presents an extremis, provide IV fluids to improve that preload. Unfortunately, about 60% of patients will have a recurrent pericardial effusion after drainage, and most patients have a very poor prognosis following diagnosis. The median survival is 2-4 to months. Let's move to our third condition. Malignant spinal cord compression is a very common cancer complication resulting from thecal sac compression, usually from local disease that progresses from vertebral body metastases, from cancers like the lung, kidney, or breast cancer, as well as multiple myeloma. There are three types of compression. There's intramedullary, where there's metastases in the dura matter. There's leptomeningeal, where there's metastases on top of the dura matter, And finally, there's external compression which is by far the most common, accounting for about 90% of cases. The thoracic spine is the most susceptible because it has the most blood supply and it has the greatest number of vertebrae. Unfortunately, it also has the least amount of space within the spinal canal, which can rapidly result in compression. Prostate cancer will often metastasize to the lumbar region, breast cancer to the thoracic region, lung cancer also to the thoracic region, and kidney cancer to the thoracic or lumbar regions. The most common complaint is back pain, found in up to 95% of patients, which often precedes other symptoms by about 2 months. Half of your patients will have bowel or bladder dysfunction at presentation, so make sure to perform a good evaluation for spinal cord impingement and consider using a postvoid residual. The most important aspect about this disease is diagnosis, and the best prognostic factor is pre-treatment ambulation and neurologic status. Make sure to obtain an MRI of the whole spine. One-third of these patients will have multiple sites of metastases and or compression. Your first item of management is treating the patient's pain. Also, get on the phone with the oncology specialist, the spinal surgeon, and also IR. If there's severe neurologic deficits like paralysis, then some recommend using high-dose steroids like dexamethasone 96 mg IV, but with this greater risk of steroids, there's higher risk of side effects. If there's minimal symptoms, then you can give dexamethasone 10 mg IV. As with many of our other patients with back pain, we don't recommend bed rest. Definitive therapy includes surgery, external beam radiotherapy, or stereotactic body radiotherapy. If the spine is unstable, then surgery is going to be needed. Ultimately, the course of treatment will be up to your spine surgeon and the oncology specialist. Similar to our other conditions, survival is very poor, with a median survival of around 6 months. All right, let's cover one final complication. Our last one is hypercalcemia of malignancy. This occurs in 20 to 30% of cancers, and there's three primary mechanisms. There's parathyroid-related protein production, which is seen in squamous cell carcinoma and lymphoma. There's osteoclast activating factor, which is seen in multiple myeloma or metastases causing osteolysis. And finally, there's endogenous calcitriol production, which is most commonly seen in lymphomas. By far the most common is parathyroid-related protein production. Unfortunately, like all of our other complications, hypercalcemia of malignancy is associated with a very poor prognosis. The most common cancers with bony involvement are breast and lung cancer, as well as multiple myeloma. Patients will present with dehydration, polydipsia, fatigue, confusion, maybe some nausea and vomiting, constipation, decreased urine output. Remember the stones, bones, groans, and psychiatric overtones. On your EKG, you might see bradycardia, prolonged PR, QRS and a shortened QT. Management is really based on the ionized calcium level, the electrolyte panel, patient symptoms, and then also the EKG. Mild hypercalcemia is defined by levels less than 12 milligrams per deciliter and no symptoms. These patients don't need immediate therapy, but they do need adequate fluid intake. Mild symptoms with levels between 12 and 14 is defined as moderate hypercalcemia, and this is more often chronic. Treatment, again, should be aimed at rehydration and finding the underlying cause. Severe hypercalcemia is defined by levels of over 14 with severe symptoms. The initial therapy is crystalloids, crystalloids, and finally more crystalloids. Loop diuretics are not recommended because of the complications. Your go-to medications will be calcitonin and also bisphosphonates. Calcitonin is by far the fastest-acting medication given at four international units per kilogram IM or subcutaneously. But unfortunately, tachyphylaxis is common after that first dose. Bisphosphonates like pamidronic acid and zoledronic acid are the mainstays of therapy after adequate rehydration. Hydration and calcitonin will lower your calcium levels by about 12 hours, but bisphosphonates will work within 24 to 72 hours. These patients with severe hypercalcemia need to be admitted. If there are neurologic deficits, or levels of 18 with end-organ injury, then dialysis will be needed. Glucocorticoids are commonly quoted as therapy, but this is really only warranted if the mechanism of hypercalcemia is due to calcitriol overproduction. That brings us to the end of part one on oncologic emergencies. Thanks for sticking with me to the end of the podcast. Remember, we talked about SVC syndrome, malignant pericardial disease, spinal cord compression, and finally hypercalcemia malignancy. The keys in the approach to these patients is really based on patient symptoms, your resuscitation, and then also speaking with a patient's oncology specialist. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.